0: Welcome to True Nature Radio. I'm Laurie Regan.
1: And I'm Heiner Fruhoff.
0: Today we're very happy to have our guest Carol Ferris here. She's an astrologer who actually knows a tremendous amount about Western astrology but has been focused over the past probably 10 years almost at really understanding the connection between how the Chinese conceive of the heavens and the stars and the stellar constellations and how we understand those in the West. Heiner, can you give us some context for this show and what we're really looking to understand?
1: Yes, many of our previous shows were about the topic of that alternative medicine is really, uh, at its core, trying to be real medicine, which is holistic in the original sense of the word, that it's whole. And uh, the way how we introduce that is that the ancients, especially the Chinese, looked at the the invisible part of reality. uh, Energy, consciousness, and how it rules the realm of matter. And the ancient Chinese division of yin and yang, the duality, uh, was originally called heaven and earth, or in Western alchemy, the above and the below. And it was always clear that the realm that we call Earth to the ancients was a reflection of the heavenly realm in material form. Uh, Or in the words of physics, it would be a material, a symbolic manifestation of invisible energetics. And so in ancient science, it was therefore given to look Uh, you know, to take the preamble of holistic medicine to treat the root, the root for the ancients was in the heavens, which was the source of the emanation of energy that then imprints itself in the earthly realm and in the realm of the human body. So the Chinese were masters, uh, as were the Egyptians and the Sumerians, in mapping the sky, uh, taking again the sun, moon, and the stars and their combinations as uh, symbolic markers for where the energetics of the whole sky were at the time. And the Chinese had this incredible, you know, they they had like a a jail, a toilet, a kitchen, the imperial court, all the ministers, they were sort of in the stellar constellations. And um, every system uh, uh, of ancient science had their own way of looking at the sky and uh, we're especially happy to have Carol here who looked uh, comparatively at how the uh, ancient western view of astrology and the ancient Chinese view go together especially not just from an anthropological perspective but to inform us today how that can be helpful for us.
2: I'd really like to start with the observation about the Sumerians and the Egyptians but especially about the Sumerians in relationship to the Chinese thinking about the sky. These ancient cultures lived with the world and in the world in a way that we modern people do not. And the the actually the word for scholarship and scribe comes from an ancient Sumerian word that I can't pronounce, that that they thought that the movement of the planets through the sky and the appearance of the stars in the sky were writing, and that the person who was able to read what the gods and the goddesses were writing in the sky was a scholar and a scribe who then essentially took down the notation of the spirit of the sky and in a discussion with Governance, whether it was a king or, or a series of kings, talked about how will we live and Both the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the ancient Chinese, over um, a period of a couple of thousand years, developed not only a complete system of of um, observation and recording of the sky and the movements of things in the sky. But they also did analog recordings of human events and the human experience of the times. So that by the time you get to the Han Dynasty and by the time you get to the Hellenistic um, era, which is between about 500 BCE and about 200 AD, you get these complete theoretical frameworks to explain the, the relationship and the resonance of human experience in the rhythms of nature. So even though the stories in the sky are different culture to culture, same sky, same stars, and that they're really languages that are about how, what do we know about how does the invisible move the visible? So... There's a whole school of Western astrology that's very much what, what I would call, um, cause-oriented or ray-oriented, and there's a lot of great astrology that's written as if that were true. My throwaway line about it is that if the rover up there on Mars finds testosterone as well as water, I, I will change my mind about the, the scientific causality uh, of, of astrology as a language. I do think that astrology Western and Eastern is a very, very remarkable language that describes how we know where we are in the rhythms of time. And that's n- not only includes the microcosm of our physical bodies from a Chinese medicine point of view, where, because, because astrology is a language not only of time, but of space. Where, where are we in that time and space rhythm? So it applies not only to the physical body, but to what we could call the psychological and the spiritual body, not only of individuals, but of, of peoples and, um, and of planets, really, of the, of the rhythm of the whole ecosystem.
0: So, Carol, you clearly have a deep understanding, and, uh, having studied, spent many years studying the stars in the sky. How do you use that on a daily basis to help individuals
2: to plan out or to understand their lives? Well well it 's in, interesting I realize i 've been practicing astrology for about forty five years now. First, I just kind of practiced on everybody that was in two or three feet of, within two or three feet of me and then they started sending people. I think when I first started practicing, I really had a very strong um, psychology it was, it was mostly psychological. Who are we? What are the qualities and characteristics of our experience? Are those codified in some way, in some objective, knowable way that if all of us looked at this person and said, this is, we would all agree this person is this way, um, that that my early experience of astrology was essentially just building rhythms and patterns and, and kind of seeing things in sequence. People come to an astrologer for a lot of different reasons. Um People come because they're curious about their place in the scheme of things. If you think about astrology, whether it's Western or Eastern, if you think about astrology as a language of time and space, then the primary thing an astrologer can do is put a person in context and perspective, whether you want to talk about it from a psychological point of view or a physiological point of view. So people come because they in the scheme of things want to know who they are and where they are in the scheme of things so some people will come for for what i would call metaphorical symbolic language that helps them think about their experience of their own life in a different way to not to stand outside themselves but that the astrologer uses the symbolic language of time and space to ground a person in in a different language about their experience. Some people come to know what to do in the next couple of weeks. Um, because astrology is a language, it's, um, should I buy this house now? Um, should I sue this guy? Is, it a, is, is, is nature, is the rhythm of things good for me to propose marriage? Um, am I okay? Am I sick? Is this a good time to get pregnant? I actually had a period of time, especially because of a certain generation of people who were pretty hip about conception. And, um, and came to, I had a lot of clients who came to me because they wanted to plan when their children were born. This is something that's very, very common in India and in, uh um, Yodish astrology, but not so common in the West. So, um so people come for all kinds of reasons. They come for predictive reasons and um the the problem for prediction is that um you an astrologer can look at time space coordinates and look at a, at that individual's story and talk about an what I would call an organic arc of direction or development if this then that but people can choose
1: I think it's important to point out to our listeners that uh, astrology is a science that describes the quality of space-time combination mm-hmm. and that it is not a pre-det- some predeterminism yeah. that I think is the cliche what makes particularly modern western people that have this idea that they are completely free and the master of everything that is happening to them and um, So from an ancient Chinese perspective, it's basically I Ching science, which is uh, understanding energetics of space and time and then through your understanding, uh, be able to act more wisely because you understand your environment better. It's the same thing as if I go into a meeting and I know who is going to be there and what those people's attitudes are, I can make a much better Presentation and influence the outcome that way, and uh, so that is what I always see with my patients. They might have a serious disease, but if they understand what is happening and why they feel much more comfortable and I think that is what astrology can be, and I know always uh, that when I send people to you, they you do that for them is that when they don't understand why is there a specific intensity and why this year, after eating organic food for 20 years, did I get this serious disease, there is this kind of lifting of, you know, it's not necessarily their fault or anything they're doing or not doing, but it is just that some movement in space-time brought about something at this very moment that might have been latent underneath the surface. And it's not that they can't do anything about it, but it is, uh, you know, we are um, we are children of the universe, and yes. we are definitely not uh, completely independent of that, thank God, actually.
2: I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about the matrix of... Um, of physiology and consciousness. And Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, as early as the 1920s, um, in, the, in his process of breaking away from Freud and his disagreement with Freud about what was conscious and what was unconscious, what was, what was available and what was repressed, made um, a couple of journeys um, to Africa, to really to deepest, darkest Africa, and to Taos. He came and studied the indigenous cultures of America. And even then, he was asking himself the question, was consciousness developing at the expense of instinct? That's how he framed it. But what he really meant was, is, our, is the capacity of human consciousness to be free and to individuate, developing with at a, at a loss of connection to ground of being, not only to the earth, not only to the rhythms of space and time of the earth, um, and some sense of connection and some sense of responsibility to it and some sense, in a way, of vulnerability to it in terms of staying related and staying connected, that um, that he was deeply concerned that while consciousness is a good thing, individuation and freedom that he saw as a potential direction, illness so not only individual illness but social illness that arose from forgetting where you came from, and and he wasn't just talking about an esoteric idea of of source, although it's implicit in that. You know, it's the the idea that tone rises from silence. I I think that was a, a metaphor that he would have employed to talk about our our conscious relationship to source. That matter comes out of that the visible rises from the invisible and returns to it. But his real concern, and this relates to modern thinking about medicine, is that um, that. Consciousness wants more of itself and the more it wants of itself and the more abstract systems it develops, the farther and farther away it gets from what will support it, the the limits of physicality. So that's a a kind of um, abstract response to your observation that that consciousness makes a difference. In how it is that we grasp our physical reality, and in a way, it's really important because it reminds us that we're actually grounded physically in it. And I think that's one of the uses of astrology. What time is it? So, like right now, here we are in in mid February, and the stars in the sky. Now, if we if we used Western language to describe where things are trapped, where the, just the sun, if we just describe where the sun is traveling from um from the point of view of of the light based zodiac the sun's traveling through the con- the zodiac sign um aquarius from a star based point of view the sun is traveling through the stars of pisces from a chinese point of view the sun is traveling through the constellations xi and b no matter, which are the stars of Pegasus in Western astrology. So so the, in real time, in the time we're experiencing now, all the stories in the sky are wet. It's either two fish tied together swimming in the ocean, which essentially symbolizes that this time is a link between the, the rigidity and darkness of winter and the not-yet-light, fluid energy of spring, um, and so, in the Chinese sky, those the Xi and Bi are constellations that are walls of the ancestral temple, where essentially you thank the ancestors for making it through the winter in one piece, alive, maybe starving, but looking forward to the days getting longer. And in the Western sky, it's very much about floods and rain and the water bearer and 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 life returning to the system. So as a practical matter, never mind whether you live in the Northwest or Tucson or South America, it's a time where where things are coming back to life. And so there are a lot of really interesting both physical and psychological and spiritual consequences of a time like this. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with a therapist who said that, that she had read somewhere that there were more suicides this time of year than in the deep winter. And she said, you know, if you think about it, when it's dark and you're asleep, curled up, you don't have to wake up. You, you the, the, the space-time says stay asleep, rest, let something grow in the dark. But as time begins to unfold and as the days get longer and as nature starts to move, you have to wake up. And for a person who psychologically cannot wake up, um, facing having the, to make the effort that it takes to push against the dark and to push against the the lid, really, of winter gets to be uh, more and more problematic. So the this time that we're in has its own kind of opportunity and it has its own kind of vulnerability and fragility. And it's not so much... About the the it it isn't that the that the metaphors of what we of the story that lives in the sky above us color our understanding, but it also reminds us of our physical experience.
1: Let's try and make the concept of time a little bit more concrete for our listeners. Um, The there is smaller cycles like uh, the Chinese had every two hours. There is something. The energetic click, uh, clock is clicking forward, and then there's uh, every week something changes. And the big cycle that you just mentioned is every month the handle of the dipper is pointing at a different constellation in the sky. And as the dipper is turning in the middle, it is like the heavenly clock is pointing at a different uh, portion of the dial. And um, the, and then there are even larger uh, cycles that change every 2,000 years, mm-hmm. like we're talking about the age of Aquarius, et cetera. And a lot of people, particularly when they hear the term astrology, they're wondering about the intensity of our times and this, the end of the Mayan calendar, et, mm. et cetera. And the poles are shifting uh, um, the, the other day uh, I heard on – the news that certain airports had even reset their compass needles because, uh, in a very measurable way, the, the true north is indeed shifting, which it only does every few hundred thousand years or so, I believe. So there is indeed something very measurably intense that we also see as practitioners with a lot of anxiety and transformation in people's lives. From your perspective, what do you see in your practice and how do you explain it, the intensity of our time?
2: Well, if we talk about the great ages, if we talk about cycles within cycles within cycles, there's a wonderful Western astrologer named Rob Hand, and, and one of the ways that he talks, that he makes astrology available to a certain kind of thinker is, he said, you know, if you still have a watch with hands that go around on it, around the dial, and both hands point towards 12 at night, most people will be sleeping. He says, you wouldn't say the hands of the watch are making people sleep but that if you know what time it is, you'll have some idea about the collective experience. So the cycles of astrology are... Um, they're light based in terms of the great lights, the sun and the moon, and the rhythms of the sun and the moon. So every day we're in a profound rhythm of the darkest dark and the lightest light of midnight to noon, no matter what time of year it is. Every month we're in a time from the darkest dark, the dark, the new dark moon, in which what the ancients would say is the moon is not carrying any light. To the lightest light, the full moon, and we're just, today we're just past the full moon and headed for the disseminating moon. So every month we're in a rhythm with, with the how light, how this light energy moves us. It moves water, we could say, not growth. And the way that sunlight makes things, brings stability and consciousness and growth, moonlight moves intuition and, and essentially water if you think about the tides. Um, so there's definitely cycles that are light-based cycles. Then there are cycles that are what I think of as more movement-based cycles, which have to do with planetary movement. So if you think about the movement of the planets, the orderly, knowable movements of the planets, thousands of years. We know where they are thousands of years ago. We know where they're going to be in 4,000 years, even with the precession of the equinoxes and, and even with the shift of the poles. So those cycles, like the Jupiter cycle, which was a huge cycle for the Chinese because the, the, the early Chinese observed, as most ancient cultures did, that Jupiter moved somewhat like the sun, that it took it a year to move through 30 degrees of arc of the sky. So um, and without them knowing how big it was, how massive it was, and in relationship to the rest of the system, they gave its cycle a lot of weight in terms of the collective experience of, of big cycles of time, of something happening every 12 years. The largest cycle is that it takes... 26,000 years approximately for every hand of the clock to make every possible combination that it's going to make once. So depending upon who you read, and depending upon which historian you read, we either have been observing and correlating human rhythms to the clock since about the 21st century BC, or from a Western point of view, it's really from about the 7th, 6th century BCE. So... Essentially, we know about a third of the life of the clock in those big cycles. It takes approximately two thousand years for the for our solar system in relationship to the fixed stars it, to rotate one click of the of the total number of clicks it 's possible for it to move and In terms of human history and human meaning making. We've only been recording and observing it really since what what Western astrologers call the Torian Age. So the Torian Age is um, roughly the great goddess ages of the 8th to 6th century BCE. And then comes the Iron Age, which is the great gods ages. So, so that's where you get all the mythology of the heroes killing the mothers. You know, whether it's, it's Marduk slaying Tiamat and putting her in the, on the celestial equator, or in a way, George, St. George slaying the dragon for the, for the princess is a, a kind of derivative of that story. Anyway, this is a long-winded answer to your question. Then comes um, the Age of Pisces, and we're in the Age of Pisces right now. And, and in the Age of Pisces, humans have separated from nature. Even in the first two great ages of which we have storytelling and records, we humans we, we, our, our consciousness had set, not separated us from our ground of being we um, the the ancient gods weren't weren 't just the god of something they were the thing they they weren 't just the god of fire they were the fire and um, and even though really early mythologies separate humans from the divine, I was just um, rereading the uh, the, some of the old Gilgamesh Enlil Enki stories of Sumer. And and there's a um, a literary text that talks about how the gods created humans so they didn't have to work, <laughs> so that, that human labor would provide them with everything that they needed. Here we are in this modern age in which all of the power, the juice, the energy, the Creativity, the potentiation of the entire universe that we used to share and have a relationship with and could know as people through our storytelling, through our societies, has all been sucked up by human consciousness. Um, how, how the psychologist would describe that is we have interjected all the power of the universe and arrogated the power of it to ourselves. And we're not very responsible about it, not just from an astrological point of view, but from a human point of view. And I think that's a part of why people are so freaked out at this level of intensity is how can we live in relationship to each other and in relationship to what sustains us if we don't think that what sustains us has any intrinsic life, intelligence, or force in the world? Um, so we're children. It's like being little kids, not really being up to the task of what it is that's before us. And um, and so this and this bridge between the Great Piscean Age and moving next to the Great Aquarian Age, if if a part of human thinking is deifying the environment, the challenge we have before us is: Are the internet and society really our gods? And and can can we take care of ourselves?
0: Carol, this is such an important topic and one that we could talk about for such a long time. We only have a few minutes left, so do you have any final
2: insights for us? I can talk about my own experience without projecting my own experience onto everyone else's experience. Chinese medicine made me well. And with my hat off to Western medicine and its ability to to tend to so many things, especially acute physical situations. Um, what I would call a, a failure of responsibility on my own part to understand my own being and, and what sustains me was what was making me sick. And the, it's the philosophy of Chinese medicine as well as the practitioners that restore you to a relationship with nature, with your own physical nature, with your body, how it works, what it does, what it's hungry for, what it can sustain, what it can't, what times of year, what temperature—all of those things are very real, real, physical on this on this planet. Kinds of things, you know. The the conversations about karma, about cause and effect, you know, the, of of what brings you here. Uh, This is an oversimplification of what the Dalai Lama says, but he says, if you're born here, this place will make a shape in your life. Gravity will make you fall down if you don't watch where you're putting your feet. You'll get old. So the, the reality of nature, of this place, and one's own nature in this place and consciousness about it, is a path to health and individual health supports and creates the possibility of he- of shared health society.
0: Sorry, that's all the time we have for today. Carol Ferris, thank you so much for being uh, here with us today. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Heiner. And that's it for today's episode of True Nature Radio. I'm Lori Regan.
1: And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Carol Ferris is in private practice in Portland, Oregon. You can find her there, and she occasionally teaches at National College of Natural Medicine. If you're interested in a professional career in naturopathic medicine or classical Chinese medicine, go to the college's website at ncnm.edu. And as always, if you're interested in uh, browsing a bit on the web about symbolism topics associated with holistic medicine and classical Chinese medicine, Go to classicalchinesemedicine.org.